Well, good morning and welcome. It's great to have you here and a special greeting to our friends at PJ Huffmaster State Park, the, the Keystone crowd out there, and all of you who are online, whether you're in your cottage or camping someplace or just inside your king-size bed watching us on the streaming. So good to have you here wherever you are and especially for you in the room. Now, I have to tell you, uh, I'm glad I got engaged when we did because I can't compete with some of the engagement events that happen these days. I mean, you got, you got 10-piece orchestras and six-course meals and you got candles and, and you've got the ubiquitous photographer hiding behind the sand dune. Man, when, when we got engaged, it was so simple. I just asked Betty Jo to marry me. Now, I have to tell you, though, that my proposal was pretty lame. It goes probably early in my book of shame. I could have done so much better asking her. I'm grateful today that she still said yes, even though my proposal was a little flaky. But she said yes. Maybe it's because that proposal was kind of sad that we really enjoy hearing some of the proposal stories that we hear. So friends of ours, kids that we've known from probably their junior high years on up, recently got engaged. So we had them over to our house. We sat down. We talked to them said, tell us the story. How did it go? And they looked at each other, and they kind of laughed. And they said, well, there's actually two parts to the story, his part and her part. And you know when they start off like that, that this is going to be really good, right? You think, oh, this is fun. So here's, here's a little bit of how it goes. We'll, we'll just call them Mike and Mary for sake of anonymity. Uh, they knew each other in high school, but they never dated. But then they, they reconnected after college. They were both working in different cities. They reconnected, started a relationship via the uh, telephone, and they would Skype, and then they would get together on weekends back in, at their hometown. And eventually they started into a serious relationship, and they actually started talking about marriage early on. What would it look like if we were to get married? When do you think we ought to get married? What would that happen for us in terms of our jobs and, and all of these details? So they start talking about all of this, we met them for lunch one day before all of this, before their engagement and everything, and, and uh, they were going to go ring shopping that afternoon. And she had this special twinkle in her eyes. She's excited about this, and, and he's kind of nervous because he's got to actually pay for that someday. Uh, and he's Dutch. Uh, and, and you don't pay for anything if you don't have to. But we had a great time talking about it. So they went out and they looked at rings and he got an idea of what she liked so that he could get the right ring, one that she'd be happy to wear, not just one that she'd have to wear. And then they kept their relationship going, waiting for that moment of the proposal when he would ask her to marry him. Weeks went by. Weeks went by. They had a date in mind, they kind of figured out when it would work best. Weeks went by. And she's getting a little irritated. That's her story. She got a little irritated. She knew they were going to get married. She knew he was going to ask her. There wasn't a question, did she love him or did he love her? The question is, when's he going to ask me? We've got plans to make. We've got to, we've got to reserve the church. We've got to reserve the hall. We've got to reserve this and that. And we've got to make all these arrangements. Ask me, will you? Weeks went by. Now, in his defense, he was having a bit of a challenge. The jeweler was making this ring for them, kind of a special design, and it got delayed. It took a little bit longer. So that pushed the proposal event 
out a little bit. And then there were certain things he wanted to do after he talked to her father, which is a whole different story. We won't get into that one. After he talked to her father, got permission to marry her, he wanted to have this special day. And so he was planning for that special day, waiting for the ring to come. And meanwhile, she's waiting for the proposal. And weekends go by when they were together and he didn't propose. And then they'd go back to their cities, they'd do their work, they'd come back again, and he didn't propose. And she's getting angrier and angrier and angrier. She's thinking to herself, just ask me, will you? Just ask me to marry you. We have plans to make. We've got reservations to make. We have things to do. Ask me to marry you for crying out loud. Weeks went by. She's waiting for him. And finally, the day comes that is right for him. And he starts off, and it's a prolonged day with activity after activity after activity, all of which were meaningful to him. And she's going, what's this all about? Just ask me to marry you. Finally, late that afternoon, in a very special place, with the photographer hiding around the corner, he got down on one knee and he asked her to marry him. All the anger that she had been building up dissipated in that moment. But they still talk about the anger. It was real. Now, they're engaged. They're going to get married in December. It's going to be a great event. We're going to celebrate with them. <laughs> but somewhere in the premarital counseling, there needs to be a conversation about dealing with anger. Because there's a little bit of that still residing there. And, and that's what we're going to talk about today, anger. You know, it's not just brides who are waiting for a proposal who get angry. All of us get angry. All of us have anger problems. And Jesus is going to talk to us about that. We're in this study called Better. And it's rooted around this simple statement. Following Jesus makes your life better. And following Jesus makes you better at life. When we follow Jesus, our life gets better. But also, when we follow Jesus, we become better at life. Jesus is going to talk about some very practical issues in life. And today, he talks with his disciples about anger. They're on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, probably in a place like this place. This is on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, over in Israel. I remember the first time Betty Joe and I took a tour group there. I remember standing as the people were seated on the ground around me. And I took my Bible and I began to read from Matthew chapter 5, which is where we find the teaching of Jesus when he's sitting with his disciples in this place. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7. The first book of the New Testament. The first gospel, the record of Jesus' life. And these three chapters encapsulate this wonderful teaching of Jesus about how to live life as a follower of Jesus. When we were reading that passage, I could imagine the disciples sitting there. And if indeed they were sitting there kind of like we are now, listening to Jesus, this is what they heard him say. You have heard that it was said to you, to people long ago, do not murder. But anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. 
And the disciples who are seated around Jesus on that hillside that day are going, oh yeah, I've heard that. Absolutely. Well, it was Moses who said that, right? Yeah, Moses. Way back when. It's part of the Big Ten, right? The Ten Commandments. It's number six. Do not murder. And then our teachers taught us that if we did murder someone, if we did kill someone, that we would be subject to judgment. Yeah, right, Jesus. Yeah, we've heard that. We've heard that. But then he goes on and he says, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And suddenly the heads stop nodding. And I have this picture in my mind of Peter leaning over to John going, wait a minute. Wait, did I just hear him right? Did Jesus just say that murder and anger are equal? That, that if we murder someone, we're subject to judgment? And now if we're angry with someone, we're also subject to judgment? Did I hear him right? That's crazy. That can't be. But Jesus isn't finished yet. Listen to what else he says. Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now we need to stop for a minute and catch up with Jesus because I think we've just lost him or he's just lost us or somewhere along the line, we've been left behind. We know murder is bad. We know it's wrong to take another person's life in a homicidal act. But do you know why it's wrong? I want to take you back to an early passage, way back in the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. And God says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. What makes murder so wrong? It's the fact that you're taking the life of an individual who has been made in the image of God. You're acting on behalf of God. You're doing something that is not yours to do. Murder is wrong because it takes the life of an individual who is made in the image of God. We are all made in the image of God. And when we take another person's life, that's wrong because we are taking someone made in the image of God. So how does that equate to anger? And what about these other words that are in here, this raka and you fool? Well, God is, Jesus is saying to us that murder and anger are the same, but then he's taking it one step farther. Raka is an Aramaic word that means empty. And when you call someone raka, you're really saying, you're stupid. You're calling someone stupid. You're empty-headed. And when you say, you fool, that's Greek for more. And more means a lack of character. It's like saying, you're worthless. You have no value. It is never right to call someone stupid. It is never right to call someone worthless. Because the, that person that you are referring to has been created in the image of God. And you are not only insulting the person, 
but you're also insulting the God who created that individual in his own image. That's why Jesus is making this statement that seems to us to be so hard to understand. That in reality, when we say, you're stupid, or you're worthless, or we get angry with you, we're also criticizing the God who created that individual. Now, some people also wonder, what's this about answerable to the Sanhedrin and in danger of the fire of hell? Well, the Sanhedrin was a religious body who kind of governed the Jewish people, and the fires of hell are pretty much the fires of hell. But Jesus isn't trying to say there's anger and then there's stupid and then there's worthless. At this point, he's just being a preacher who's making an illustration and he's building upon his illustration saying, I want you to understand that there are consequences for your anger and for your, for your willingness to call someone stupid or worthless. We might sum that all up under the term contempt. That you have contempt for another person. Anger toward them and contempt toward them are always going to be wrong. We need to watch against that. Jesus makes this point. Anger and contempt for another person made in the image of God is an offense to the individual and it's also an offense to the God who created that person. But let's stop for a minute. Let's talk about this anger. What really is anger? How should we be thinking about anger right now? If anger is equivalent to murder, then we better take a moment to understand what we're talking about. So anger is usually an emotional response to something happening around us. It might be an unmet need or desire. So you take your children to the store and you walk past a candy bar aisle and they go, I want a candy bar. And you say, no, not now. We're going to go home and have dinner. No, now. I'm hungry. I'm starving. I'm dying. I need a candy bar. And you get angry because they're getting angry. They're angry with you because you won't let them have a candy bar. And you get angry with them because they're embarrassing you. They're making a scene and you feel uncomfortable. Anger sometimes comes because we lose control. I don't know if you've been driving on any of our roads in Grand Rapids lately. <laughs> There's absolutely no control. You can't go anywhere without having orange barrels. A loss of control. And you get angry. We sometimes get angry because of unrealized expectations. Like Mary waiting for Mike to propose to her. And the longer she had to wait the angrier she got because of an unrealized expectation. Sometimes we get angry at a sense of injustice, and maybe that's one place where we could talk that anger might have a purpose, a purpose or a place. But anger is this emotion that wells up within us in response to something happening around us. And we all have a serious anger problem. We all have an anger problem. But anger looks differently for each one of us. So let me just suggest some ways that anger might look in your life. How about the volcano? You know what the volcano was like? I, I was eight or nine years old. I'm riding bikes with my friends around our neighborhood. We were going to take a race around the block. We were growing up in Holland, nice 
calm little city. And we decided to make the ride around the block in the race a little more interesting by weaving in and out of driveways all the way around the block. So we did, and I was ahead. I was probably three quarters of the way around the block, and I came out of the driveway, going to swing around to the next driveway, and there was a car. And he was angry. I drove in front of him a little bit, maybe, and, and he might have almost hit me, but he, had, he was angry. I didn't understand. I'm, I'm, and he stopped his car, and he rolled down, rolled down his window. Some, <laughs> didn't just push the button. He rolled it down. And he started saying things to me. And somewhere along the line, he said, where do you live? Take me to your house. And I thought, oh, man. I went around the block, drove in my driveway. He pulled in behind me. He yelled at me. He yelled at my dad. He drove away. That's the volcano. All of a sudden, boom, you go off. Know anybody like that? Maybe you know someone like the iceberg. The iceberg. Anger drives this, goes inside. The anger that person feels just goes internal. And he becomes silent while churning and chewing and just gnawing on that anger issue. Take your teenage son. You've been after him to mow the lawn. He's inside playing video games. He doesn't even hear you, or at least he doesn't, he doesn't act like he hears you. And finally, you go to him, you stand in front of the screen, and you say, get outside and mow the lawn like you're supposed to do. And he throws down the controls. And he stomps out of the house, doesn't say a word, grabs the lawnmower, hammers it around the yard, comes back inside, slams the door, picks up his controls, and plays his video games. Yeah, he might be angry. Never said anything. It was all inside, but it was showing through his actions. That's the iceberg. You see a little bit of it, but oh, there's so much more going on inside. Or how about the slow burn? This person harbors an offense, sometimes for years, and refuses to forgive or seek resolution for the issue, and in the process grows increasingly bitter, if not toward everyone, at least toward that person or those persons who were involved in that initial offense. I think of a woman I know who somewhere along the line had an out with her sister. And they stopped being friendly to each other. Eventually, they stopped even having communication back and forth with each other. No one really knows what the issue was. No one's ever heard what the issue is. <coughs> but it's real. And the sad part is, those sisters died without ever resolving the issue. The long, slow burn, which just eats away at your soul and turns you into a bitter angry person. Or there's the abuser who's not able to correct the wrong or not able to deal with an offense and they turn against another person. And I think of the older sister who watched her younger sister get all of the attention and all of the interest and all of the support and she began to resent her younger sister and she began to just speak harshly, act rudely, and in a sense, abuse her younger sister because she felt 
she was being treated unfairly. And her anger caused her to act in that harsh, negative, abusive fashion toward her younger sister. Now, there are more evidences of anger. But that gives you an idea of how anger is manifested. Sometimes we're a volcano and it explodes. Sometimes it goes inside and we harbor it like, a, like an iceberg. Sometimes we take this long, slow burn. We refuse to forgive or resolve. And we become bitter and nasty people. Or sometimes we become abusive. Anger is the explosive emotion that torches marriages and disintegrates families. It energizes gossip and guns down classmates. It divides churches, destroys friendships, and erupts into road rage. The fact that some of us react in less colorful ways than others does not mean that those who are quiet are not angry. Just because we don't react in a violent, external fashion doesn't mean there's not anger there. Anger is also the root of irritability, brooding, complaining, and bitterness. Anger, our explosive emotion, touches every one of us. So what are we to do? How are we to manage this? Well, Jesus is not finished yet. That's the good news. He has more to say and we continue the conversation with his disciples. Therefore, Jesus said, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Since anger is so destructive, reconciliation becomes imperative. It's a must. We have to reconcile. Jesus uses the example of a man bringing a sacrifice to the temple. He brings maybe his, his doves or his, his sheep, and, and then he remembers that there's this relationship that's been separated because of angry words or angry things that have happened between them. And Jesus said, leave your sacrifice right there and go and reconcile that relationship. Then come back and bring your sacrifice. But what does that mean for you and me? We don't bring sacrifices like that. We don't bring doves or sheep to be sacrificed. Well, I think it's this. We cannot hide our anger, our broken relationships, with religious duty. You can't just come to church, sing the songs, and smile as if nothing is wrong, knowing that you've got a broken relationship off here that needs to be mended. It makes a mockery of our worship. It is more important to reconcile a broken relationship than it is to show up at church on a Sunday morning for a service of worship. We should never substitute religious activity for our integrity, our purity, and our love. That's what Jesus is saying to us. But he has even more to say Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand, your, hand you over to the judge. And he continues. And the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. There was this thing called the debtor's prison back in the day of Jesus. 
And if you owed someone a lot of money, they would throw you into prison until you had paid your debt, which seems a bit ironic. Because how are you going to get money while you're in prison to pay the debt that you've now accrued? The fact is, you would hope that your family would somehow scrape together the money to pay the debt so that you could be let free from prison. But Jesus said, settle matters quickly. And on top of the reconciliation statement he had just made, be reconciled, he says, now do it quickly. I believe Jesus is stressing the urgency of personal reconciliation. Work to resolve the matter as quickly as possible. Don't allow your anger to continue to fester and destroy the relationship even more. Because unresolved anger doesn't make things go away, it makes things worse. And so Jesus said, settle it quickly. Do it as quickly as possible. It is less about who's at fault and more about restoring a broken relationship. Which brings us to our big idea for today. Your perspective will either fuel or diffuse your anger. Anger, our explosive emotion, leaves us with choices. We can nurse and feed and fuel our anger, leaving a trail of broken relationships in our wake. Or we can choose to love our brother and sister, even when they do and say hurtful things to us. We can develop an attitude of forgiveness and a commitment to heal broken relationships. Remembering that we have a choice, we can choose to respond to an offense in anger, or we can choose to respond to an offense in love. As followers of, of Jesus, our obligation is clear. We go back to what Jesus has said. We've looked at this verse so many times already <clears throat> in the past few weeks. <clears throat> Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. So let me leave you with four steps to deal with anger. First, admit you do get angry. Just admit it. Own it. You do. I do. We do. We all have an anger issue. At some point, in some way, we all struggle with anger. Admit it. Secondly, correct the offense. Good things, church attendance, being involved in a small group, giving a donation, serving in some capacity, these all are worthless in God's sight. If we hold anger toward another person, if we fail to reconcile broken relationships, correct the offense. Third, do what you can do immediately. Anger doesn't just go away. It burrows deeper and deeper into your heart. So deal with the situation as soon as you can possibly do so. Do what you can do as soon as possible. And finally, ask God to change your heart. Ask him to give you a different perspective, to replace your anger with compassion and love for this other person. So I give you this challenge. Who is there in your life with whom you have a broken relationship? In prayer, I challenge you to ask God to show you how best to approach this person and begin the process of reconciliation. Do what you can 
as soon as you can to make it right. Don't allow it to continue. Because unresolved anger and contempt for another person in the eyes of God are as bad as murder. When I think about reconciliation, I think about you and me reconciling with people with whom we may be on the outs. The greatest act of reconciliation that ever took place was when God sent his son Jesus to this earth to reconcile you and me through faith in his work on the cross, to give us forgiveness for our sins and a new life in him.